turn in the Word of God to Proverbs 19 and the verses read a moment ago, 18 to 29. You know, one of the striking things about the book of Proverbs, one of the striking things about Solomon is how he takes ordinary, everyday issues and puts them into a bigger context. And in seeing the wider context, that's what is crucial for us, to think Christianly, to take what we know of the Bible, what we're already taught, and to apply that biblical teaching to ordinary, everyday things, thereby showing to you how the Bible influences and shapes the way we think the way we live, the way we respond in every situation. So we look at these verses under the heading, Godly Living. Godly Living. First of all then, verses 18 through 20, the brevity of life. Here are three ordinary subjects. And Solomon says they all matter in this sense, life is short, eternity is forever. We note the word hope in verse 18, the word punishment in verse 19, and the phrase latter end in verse 20. So Solomon is drawing these different things together and showing you the brevity of life is what governs all of this. In verse 18, let not thy soul spare for his crying. It is a difficult phrase, hence the margin, if you have one that gives you help. The idea is simply this. Discipline is essential in life, but killing is forbidden. Life is short enough without ending it sooner in a human sense. In verse 19, punishment is front and center. And the context is sobering. There are some people who are incurable. And the only outcome for them is punishment itself. This our culture doesn't understand. There are simply some people who just will not be cured. They're incurable. And so they must feel the weight of punishment. Punishment is therefore essential. Now, of course, punishment no longer exists in our culture. We don't even talk of punishment in school. Everything now is about rewarding positive behavior. Because no one does anything wrong, you see. That's the reality of our culture. And so we talk about those with behavioral issues. Well, everyone has behavioral issues. But some of them are just plain wrong and need to be punished. So in this short life in which we 
have given to us. Punishment has a place. And in verse 20, the brevity of life is more explicit. The latter end. So throughout these three verses, the emphasis is upon a short life and that this life shall come to an end, which means all the good we try to do is within that overall reality. Everything we seek to do is within this obvious reality of the brevity of life. Now many people, in fact probably everybody in our world, knows that for many people life is very short. You know, children die in the womb, children die when they're born, and they, they die all kinds of ages thereafter. So everyone knows they're going to die. Everyone knows life can be very short indeed. Not everyone's going to see 99 and a half. And we attend sufficient number of funerals of those who have died in their 30s, 40s, and early 50s. So it's as if Solomon is saying to us, whatever needs doing must be done here and now because there will come a point when it's simply too late to do anything at all. And now comes the most important statement in verse 21. There are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord that shall stand. Jonathan Edwards writes on this verse. However men may project about many things, yet there is never nothing come at the pass but what God determines. That's classic Edwards style of thinking and writing. However men may project about many things, yet there is never nothing come at the pass but what God determines. And so Solomon says to us, we must not only be convinced of the brevity of but bring that brevity of life into everyday affairs so that whatever can be done, needs to be done, must be done while we are alive because after death, that's it. As far as this life and this world is concerned, the rest is not going to happen. So you go to a funeral of someone maybe who died in their early 40s, early 50s, and their death was so unexpected to them and to their whole family, and they had many things at hand, and they were engaged in many things, they had great plans for the future, and they had great projects that were set in motion. But what has happened to all those projects? The death, it's all over. The projects lie unfinished, and are simply discarded because the only one who really knew anything about them was the person who's now dead. So the brevity of life must be built into our whole way of thinking. 
In other words, it's not just a matter of saying, I subscribe to the idea. The question is, do we live in the light of it and plan and think and act in the light of it? Second, the habits of life, verses 22 to 25. And what you now see is that verse 21 is the hinge, as it were, the bridge, maybe, between the previous section and this. And here you have a mixture that we all see in life, the habits of life. Firstly, what is preferred in verse 22? The desire of a man is his kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. What is preferred? Well, ordinary people actually prefer kindness. Not maybe that they are kind in themselves, but they do prefer to see kindness being done by others. Even those who are ungodly are sometimes missed simply because of their kindness. And kindness is not restricted to age. And sometimes I think even as Christians, we do neglect kindness. Just simply being kind to one another and to others. So you think of Second Kings 5. Here you have Naaman the Syrian. Great man with his master, honourable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria and made a man of valour, but he was a leper. The Syrians had gone out by companies, had brought away, captive out of the land of Israel, a little maid. So here is a very young girl, perhaps in her early teens, given the way she's described. And she waited on Naaman's wife. And she said unto her mistress, Would God, my Lord, were with the prophet that is in Samaria, for he would recover him of his lands. Kindness is not restricted to age. And there is a lesson from this young girl, clearly brought up, taught to be kind to others, even in the most adverse circumstances. This girl is never going home. She's not going to see her family, her relatives, her village ever again. But is she bitter? Is she thrown Argumentative? No. She demonstrates kindness. And the Lord himself takes note of kindness. So in Mark chapter 14 and in verse 6 we read, Jesus said, Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. Lord takes note of kindness. So ordinarily, people like kindness. And also, Ordinary people prefer poverty above lying. When they are faced with a simple option, 
Would you rather be dealing with a liar or be dealing with somebody who's poor? Would you rather have a neighbor who's poor or a neighbor who is a liar? Ordinarily, people prefer poverty above lying. So that's the first thing. What is preferred? Secondly, what is needed? Verse 23. The fear of the Lord tendeth to life, and he that hath it shall abide satisfied. He shall not be visited with evil. How many want to live well? But what do they do? They look in the wrong place. The Christian knows where it all begins. Everything begins with the fear of God. Indeed, the entire book of Proverbs is simply a sermon, an exposition on that one simple basic fact. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So here in chapter 19, in this verse 23, we're still back in chapter 1. When you think about it, we've covered many topics in these 18 and a half chapters. But it's still about the fear of the Lord. Sometimes, you know, we make the mistake, we think that if we put everything in separate categories, we're always good at this, you know, putting everything in a separate box, as if somehow or other that enables us to understand everything. Well, all it does is it creates disjointed thinking. You know, there's no joined up thinking. And that's the big fault even amongst Christians. And we subdivide everything. What Solomon does is he just puts it all under one enormous heading and says, now there may be different branches of thought here and different subjects, but ultimately they always point you back to the fundamental premise, the fear of the Lord. And in our cleverness, we sometimes overlook them. Now, there are three elements here in all of this. There's the beginning of life. What is the beginning of life? It's the fearing of God. The beginning. Secondly, there is the continuance of life. What is it? To abide satisfied. And thirdly, there is the rule of life. We shall not be visited with evil. Now we need to pause, of course, at this one to ensure we understand it correctly. Solomon is not saying to you, bad things are never going to happen to you. He is saying, regardless of what trouble and affliction and trials you may experience, it will always work out for good. If it didn't, that would be evil and wickedness. And I'll put it this way too. Often people do things to us and all kinds of bad things are done to us. And adverse circumstances arise as a consequence. How exactly should we deal with them? Well, the answer here is this. We look people and we say to them, 
no matter what you do to me, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you plan, no matter what you accomplish, you cannot do me any harm. Because everything you do, whatever comes to pass, in providence puts me in the place where I'm supposed to be. Now when you look back where we are like, you know, we do love patterns. We don't like changes in life. You know, we would wear the same suit of clothes for the rest of our lives because we don't like, you know, all of the hassle and so on. We like to travel on the same road, travel to the same place, travel in the same car. We like that tradition of things. If providence didn't tear everything apart, if providence didn't send a strong wind to blow us in a different direction, we wouldn't move. In other words, why do all things work together for good? Because nothing bad can ultimately do us harm. No matter what goes on, it always puts us in the place where we're meant to be, in the position we're meant to be. That's where God wants us to be. And if that wasn't the case, then everything would indeed be a harm and a danger. Everything would indeed be an evil. So we look foes in the eye and say, you know, they say, I'm going to make sure you suffer. I'm going to make sure you lose your job I, or be demoted. I'm going to make sure bad things happen to you. And we say to them, friend, there is nothing you can do that will be to my hope. Fear of the Lord tendeth the life. He that hath it shall abide satisfied. So the rule of life applies. One of the reasons why we are wingers and grumblers and complainers and all the rest of it is because we have ceased to think like Solomon. We have ceased to think like Solomon. So what is needed? This is what is needed. And thirdly, what is avoidable? Verse 24. A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom and will not much as bring it to his mouth again. Here's another habit. So you have what is preferred, you have what is needed, now you have what is avoidable. The slothful are so lazy, they put their hand to the dish, but haven't got the energy to lift the food out of the dish and put it back in their mouth. That's the analogy that Solomon is using. Because they want somebody else to do it for them. The slothful is one of those characters Solomon clearly dislikes. They are dislikable beings. Sloth can be avoided. Solomon is making it very clear to us. You cannot be a child of God, verse 23, and lazy at the same time. Astonishingly, the sluggard starves 
despite having every opportunity. So he makes a start, 24A, but fails to finish, 24B. And there are many people who meet like that. Bridges, in his commentary, makes a spiritual point of application here that's worth repeating. A profession without sacrifice, without diligence, will never open a way to heaven. We can be spiritually lazy, and not just lazy in every other way. The fourth habit, verse 25, what is helpful. Smite a scorner, the simple will beware. Reprove one that is understanding, and he will understand knowledge. Solomon is telling you, look, there are some who need a flogging to make others take notice. Some need only reproof in order to learn. In other words, some are teachable, are willing to learn, but others require a more forceful approach to their learning. What is helpful? Are we teachable? Or do we need a flogging to get us to learn? Do we want to learn? Do we want to understand? This is why reading is so important. You know, watching television all day long deadens the brain cells, I think. I think it does something to us psychologically. Uh, because, you know, as, as someone comes into the house, you, you know, we were brought up, were we not? When somebody calls, turn the television off. It was, I suppose, earlier, turn the virus off. And now you go visiting and that wretched thing stays on, blurring. And uh, if you dare to go over and turn it down, they're appalled. What a dreadful ministry, turned down my television set. And the eyes just seem to glaze over. I'm not saying don't have a television, but I'm saying, you know, we do need to actually recognize that whatever stops you thinking, it's the whole point of television, it's actually to stop you thinking. The whole point of amusement, be without thought. This is the value of reading, to be readers. It's not that you need to read the entire works of Tolstoy and Gibbon and Gibbon's 12 volumes to try and follow the Roman Empire. Well, at least take up and read, even if it's only a book of 40 pages, even if you only read five pages. Read a sermon of Edwards. Well, that's going to take you quite a while because Edwards does stretch the mind and sort of gets in there and he stretches those brain cells and every sentence makes, means that you have to think about it. But of course, there's Thomas Watson, you know, so full of illustrations and you can read a commandment or a petition of the Lord's Prayer and within 20 minutes of it read and you've got those wonderful illustrations that he uses to help you. So we don't lack resources. We, we don't lack the equipment. The question is, do we have the desire to think, to read, to learn? 
or do we need a good flogging? And all of which brings you back to verse 21. That which is certain. As we look at everything, everything seems so variable, changeable, fickle even. We need 21 to remind us that while we do not know what's going to happen, we do know that God has it all planned. His will shall come to pass. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord shall stand. You know, we look at our world around us, and I'm sure like myself, you know, you have many conversations with people, and they say, what's going to happen over the other side of the world? You know, is there going to be a, a third world war? Is China going to invade Taiwan? Because if that happens, well, there's going to be a dreadful consequence. Is Russia going to win? What's North Korea going to do? And what about all those protests across Europe that BBC conveniently ignores? But all those protests that are sweeping from one country to another where ordinary citizens have had enough of many things. What's going to happen with all these prices that are going to keep on rising? Well, I can tell you this. One doesn't need to be a prophet or a mathematician or an economist. If you reduce farm production by 30%, don't expect a loaf of bread to remain the same price. Don't expect potatoes to stay the same What's going to happen? What's going to happen to oil prices? The whole the economy. What if all these banks, one after the other, start failing? People have all these questions. Then we have the irrationality of our culture. Where's all that going to end? I see another gender has been added to the allegedly 73. We now have a 74th added to the list. Well, by the end of the year, who knows how many they're going to be. But it shows you how irrational things are. And we say, where's it going to end? And we're waiting for that pendulum moment when everything just simply collapses and people waken up and say, we've got to grapple with all this. But it doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And so we need this statement. By Solomon. Solomon keeps saying to her, It may all be seeming crazy to you, but the Lord is in control. The counsel of the Lord shall stand. When you go to bed at night, you wake up in the morning, the counsel of the Lord has an altar while you were sleeping. And when you get into your car and hopefully arrive at your destination, the counsel of the Lord hasn't changed. When you left home, you came back in the evening. Counsel of the Lord stands firm. On our side, we are to be patient. The third element, verses 26 to 29, the undesirables of life. What is in view here are actions which are just, plain, wrong. Firstly, robbery and violence, verse 26. The word waste is also translated as robber and to ravage. To chase away is fairly straightforward. And sadly, this is seen across society over generations. You know, sometimes we think, 
Oh, I've never seen it as bad as this. Oh, this has got to be the worst generation ever. Well, Solomon is telling you, here's what it's like. You see it? Robbery and violence. Secondly, rejecting good advice. Verse 27. Solomon tells you here, if you listen to the wrong advice, you will go wrong. On the other hand, if you don't listen to good advice, you're still going to go wrong. So listening to the wrong people is as bad as not listening to the right people. Cease, my son, to hear the instruction that causeth the earth in the words of knowledge. Rejecting good advice. And then, in verse 28 and 9, bearing false witness. There are those who just don't care about equity and justice and fairness. And they're indifferent to the consequences of telling lies on their oath. In fact, they not only don't care about the consequences, they're quite pleased with themselves that they stood in the witness box and they lied, and in their lying caused hurt to others. And all this gives concern to us. All of these things matter. But what's the conclusion of it all? Verse 29. There's a day of reckoning that must come. Judgment and punishment will inevitably come. I was reading a list of the names of all of the policemen and police reserve and all of those people who were murdered in our country. Those murders were committed and very, very few have ever been caught and punished. And then you think of all of those court cases that have happened over the years and they ended up being thrown out because witnesses just lied and lied and lied. And so people got away with criminality. Solomon tells you, here is your comfort and consolation. Judgment and punishment will inevitably come. It's an inevitability. It must happen. Because my friends, if there's no God, there's going to be no judgment. There's going to be no consequences. That means we will all have to become enforcers of the law ourselves. What holds us back is verse 29. Judgments are prepared. Well, let's come very simply to some points of application. First of all, the encouragement of God's sovereignty. Verse 21. God's sovereignty means his absolute independence to do as he pleases and what he pleases is always good. The encouragement of God's sovereignty. And secondly, 
from verse 25, learning from the mistakes of others. Bishop Hall wrote on this, God strikes some that he may warn all. But the question is, do we see and learn? When we see others being punished for their deeds, do we take warning from that for ourselves? By the faults of others, we should be correcting ourselves. Or at the least, that is what we hope. And we see other people being corrected and say, well, am I going to learn from that? I'm going to avoid doing that same thing. And I see them being corrected. So we should learn from the mistakes of others. Not to be dismissive of those mistakes as if, well, they made the mistake. Nothing to do with us. Solomon says it has everything to do with us. We learn from what happens to them. So God strikes some that he may warn all. And thirdly, poverty doesn't determine the love of God. Poverty doesn't determine the love, the love of God. Verse 22. William Sacker wrote this. God did not choose us because we were high. So he will not forsake us because we are low. Isn't that wonderful? You know, when some people are poor and they gain wealth, they gain a lot of friends. But what happens when they lose all that wealth? They lose all their friends. All the hangers on are gone. Sacker is right. We were nothing when God chose us from the salvation. And now that we are poor, he will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. In other words, neither fame nor failure, neither riches nor ruin are indicators of God's love, goodness and kindness towards us. This is the flaw of the charismatic. Charismatic comes to people that are sick and says, oh, well, you know, if God loved you, you wouldn't be sick. So therefore God must hate you now that you're sick. When you were well, you could say God loved you. Now you're sick, you have to say God hates me. What a terrible theology. What a, a, an obnoxious theology. God's love doesn't change whether we have fear poverty, whether we are in ruin or riches. And I bring you back again to Mark 14, uh, where the Lord says of Mary, let her alone, verse 8, she had done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body with a burial. So Mary has commended for doing what she could, not criticised for being unable to do more. <coughs> God's love towards us, God's goodness towards us, doesn't change because our circumstances change. So when you had lots of money, 
Did God love you more when you got someone? Now that you're in poverty, does he love you less? So here is Mary. She's not criticized because she's unable to do more. God's kindness doesn't change even as our circumstances change. Poverty doesn't determine the love of God for us. May the Lord bless these words to your hearts. Let us come to prayer. Brother Alan Blaney will lead us.